Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Alvin Rabushka, the David and Joan Traytel Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Twenty-five years ago, Alvin, with Robert Hall, authored The Flat Tax, unleashing a major debate on tax reform in the United States and around the world. In honor of the 25th anniversary of the book, the Hoover Institution has reissued it, and in honor of April 15th, we're here to discuss the ideas. Alvin, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Alvin, a lot of people in the wake of April 15th are muttering and complaining about how unpleasant it is to fill out a tax form and file your taxes legally and correctly in the United States. And every once in a while, that generates a discussion about what we might do about that. And you've proposed the idea of a flat tax. Uh, Tell us its virtues and, and its vices, if there are any. Uh, I'm not predisposed to see any vices, so that part of the answer is easy. Okay, I'll provide that later if necessary. Right. The virtues are simplicity. Instead of complicated long forms, um, a business requires a simple postcard and an individual requires a simple postcard, so the two postcards are no more than any one individual would have to confront. The uh, complications in the systems are relatively cleaned up in exchange for one simple low rate Almost all of the uh, deductions, exclusions, exemptions, and credits are eliminated. The uh, corporate personal taxes are fully integrated, so we eliminate the double tax on business income, which in effect means there's no tax on dividends or capital gains. We change the tax treatment of interest from its current system, where interest is deductible to a business and taxable by an individual, to disallowing it at the business level, and thus it's not taxable to the individual. And all of these changes allow you to clean up and simplify the system. One rate is a very important feature because it means individuals don't shift deductions from business to their persons or vice versa, and they don't have to shift income from uh, businesses to their persons or vice versa. So it doesn't matter how your income is earned. The tax consequence is exactly the the same. This is a, a nutshell treatment of it. It would um, allow you roughly in five minutes to do your tax returns. If you live largely on the basis of wages and salaries, you would have a statement of your income. You would have the tax withheld. You would um, fill those informations out on the postcard. You would take an allowance for uh, you if you're single, you and your wife if you're married, and any additional children. The balance would be multiplied by a rate somewhere between 17 and 19%, and that's what you owe. And if the withholding was accurate, that would be the end of the story. If you're a business, you would uh, have to, of course, deduct your business expenses. You would uh, write off your labor costs. You would write off the cost of your uh, inputs. And um, a big improvement, you would go from multi-year depreciation to overnight 100% expensing. Um, And then you would simply report your profit and pay the tax. Or if you had a loss, you would carry it forward. That simplifies the system pretty much. Those are its virtues. Um, insofar as the taxpayer is concerned, there are other virtues, which is a low rate provides incentives for work, savings, and investment. By dropping the rate to below 
most taxpayers and most businesses would receive a very strong inducement to expand their economic activity. The labor supply would rise by some amount, and capital formation would rise by some amount, and entrepreneurial risk would increase by some amount. These amounts can always be debated and analyzed, but most economists agree the numbers would be positive. This would improve economic efficiency and growth and in the long run provide better paying jobs and more jobs and higher incomes and a higher standard of uh, living. Um, Also, um, a third part, which would be the government's ability to enforce the tax system. Right now, the system is so complicated that some taxpayers, even if they try their best to get it right, can make honest mistakes. The simpler the system, the less likely that's the case, the less likely you'll be dragged into a court or into an Internal Revenue Service office to have your tax return disputed. So from the standpoint of me as an individual complying, from the standpoint of the government enforcing the system, from the standpoint of the economy overall, I would say those would be the the principal attractions of the flat tax. I'll fight off the urge to end the podcast here. Uh, with a thank you very much, but and we'll continue. But it, it, the the virtues are very powerful. Uh, let me just ask you a few clarifying questions. When you say one rate, you, you mean one rate for business and individuals, as well as one rate at which all income is taxed. Correct. It's the same rate for individuals and businesses. Um, that's an important part of the feature because if you have a different rate for business and a different rate for individuals then people will move deductions to where the rate is the highest and income to where the rate is lowest. So by having a single rate, it allows full integration of all business and personal taxes. Um, And it's a feature that isn't widely understood, but if you think a little bit about it, imagine you're a physician and you're subject to um, personal income taxes at varying rates, and at the same time you run a property business on the side, and your inclination is going to be to try to move money around in such a way where you get as much deduction as you can at the highest rate and take as much taxable income as you can at the lowest rate. If the rate's the same, it doesn't matter, and people won't spend any time at all involved in the tax planning aspect of life, which is just a huge, enormous business. Yeah, and a, and a very wasteful one because all it accomplishes is it helps people comply with an extremely complex law. Let me add one clarification, or I should say an example of this. Many years ago in the 1980s, I spoke to the largest chapter of financial planners in the United States, which is in Silicon Valley, Um, and we talked a little bit about what they do. And what they said they do is they basically work to reduce the taxes of their clients. And out of the 400 who attended the room that day, um, about four, 1% said, that they could probably keep doing what they're doing and earn a living if we switch to the um, simple low flat tax. The other 396 said they'd have to go find something else to do because if the tax rate was below 20% and if the form was that simple, most people wouldn't need financial planning. And that would be good. It would be hard for them. They'd have to maybe take some time to find what that new thing was, but the idea would be that they'd do something productive That's exactly the point, and I always, in a joking reply, indicate that while I'm generally predisposed against government subsidies to individuals, I'll suspend that belief this one time and agree to a three-month retraining program (laughs) because the long-run consequences of taking a half a million of the smartest people in the United States 
and changing their activity from simply reducing taxes on others to doing something productive by way of providing goods and services would be an enormous benefit. Yeah, that, that's one of the unseen benefits of tax reform that people sometimes forget about. It would be a cost in the short run to those folks, but for the economy as a whole, for the rest of us, they'd have to do something that would uh, help others or they wouldn't make a living, yeah. and that would all be to the good. Then there's all the time that we spend uh, collecting our receipts and, and filling out our taxes or paying someone, earning the money to pay someone to do it for us. That would all be freed up to do something, whether it's... What's astounding is that even people who simply have limited sources of income feel obligated to go to places like H&R Block to be sure they're not going to be badgered by the IRS. Um, and so we've created a system that puts fear into people. Not a nice thing. And uh, it's a um, relatively difficult system to change despite that. It's an issue I, I think I want to def defray till later, but it's a remarkable thing given how unpleasant it is uh, that it persists uh, year after year. One reason is the, the vested interests of these uh, folks. We're talking about the 396, although my tax preparer assures me that he would be happy to spend his time doing something else. Uh, although there might be a transition cost uh, for him. I think one way to think about this is to go back to the Mayflower Compact. When the Mayflower arrived and then they opened up the ship and they wrote a compact from scratch, um, there were no vested interests when they sat down to write that compact. They started from scratch. I think it's probably the case, and I've talked to enough businessmen and corporate treasurers and tax planners, that as you look at the current structure of interests that make up the tax code, if we started all over again from scratch, they'd probably all agree that something like a low simple flat tax makes a lot of sense. Their fear is that if you get into the political game of trying to do the trade-offs to get to something like this, anything they give up might not be matched by something they gain and as a result, it's a risky business to go into a reform process in which you put at risk your benefit with no guarantee that the end process is going to offset it or improve your condition. For sure. Now, you mentioned a rate, you said between 17 and 19 percent. It wouldn't fluctuate. There would be a particular single rate. Let's use uh, 19. Where does that number come from? The original number, 19 percent which we proposed back in 1981 when we first developed the specifics of the plan, was intended to be a revenue-neutral plan. <clears throat> that is, we took the current amount of government revenue. We didn't pay any attention to whether the government was in surplus or deficit or balance. We just simply said, how much money does the government collect in corporate personal income tax? We then wanted to provide households with a personal allowance that was at least equal to the standard deduction and the personal exemption so that we were giving low-income people an exemption of tax on their first so much amount of money by 19 um, uh, – today it would be between 35 and 40,000. In 1995, it was more like 25,000 for a family of four. Originally, it was less. And then we said, what – percentage would generate the same revenue, and it came out 19%. If we had wanted to collect more revenue, we might have said 20%. If we had wanted to collect less revenue, we might have said 18%. So 19 was simply the derivation of a number. 
which was the result of the amount of income subject to tax after subtracting business investment and personal allowances, um, and what would generate the same amount of revenue. Making no we are of the view, and I want to add this point because it's very important, that the rate should be below 20%. And our view on that is we want to see 20% as a barrier that would be too difficult to cross. Our fear would be that if we went to 20, somebody might propose, well, let's go 20 and a half or let's go 21, the way the sales tax rates seem to inch up a quarter of a point and a half a point. So we like 19 as a maximum, although today we could probably make do with a lower number of 17%. But as far as as long as it's below 20%, um, I think that Bob Hall and I would remain quite happy with the flat tax. And allowing the federal government to uh, allocate, distribute, and have recreational experience with a fifth of our output seems seems like plenty. They currently collect eighteen and a half percent, but eleven of that is income tax. The other eight half is basically the Social Security payroll tax. And in effect, our flat tax, which is nineteen percent on a tax base that excludes investment. Mm-hmm. and personal allowances is about 11% of the gross domestic product. But I do want to add a very important point, which is left out in the debate, and that is virtually all economists agree there would be a net benefit to economic growth from such a flat tax, and that over time it would result in more revenue compared with the current tax system, which actually means you would reduce any budget deficit, or the government would have more money to spend, um, or you could reduce the rate below 19%. So the additional economic growth you would get would be um, a net benefit all around in terms of higher incomes for individuals and, in fact, higher income for the government. And the um, two months or one month or one week before April 15th would be like every other day. Uh, for those who, um, that's for those, correct. For those people who haven't seen the book, um, the book has a picture of the postcard you would actually file. And I just want to reassure our listeners in case anyone thinks that Alvin is cheating, that the print on the postcard is visible to the naked eye. It's not – when he says it would fit on a postcard, it's not like those cheat sheets you might take into an exam where they say you can bring in one sheet of paper – or one three-by-five card where people cram this in tiny handwriting, hundreds of words. It's a regular, genuine, normal-looking postcard. And it's only one side, by the way. Um, I should also add that the current U.S. federal tax code being 66,000 pages long with its uh, various forms and regulations, it turns out that there's another attractive feature of the postcard. It's self-explanatory. And therefore, you don't need hundreds of pages of regulations to explain how to put the numbers into the postcard. I guess you could put a uh, some set of instructions on the backside if you needed them. But as as you say, if you just looked at the postcard, it's totally self-explanatory. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. There would be, of course, some instructions for businesses. Um, but for individuals on wages and salaries, which is three-quarters of our working population, it's just absolutely as straightforward as can be. And since there is no separately recorded tax on dividends and capital gains, that gets rid of Schedule um, D, and it gets rid of parts of uh, Schedule B, 
And since interest income has changed from not being deductible to not being taxable, that gets rid of keeping track of all those pieces of paper the bank sends you every year so that you don't have to have a file box of slips of paper coming out of your banks and brokerage offices, and that information doesn't have to go on your individual postcard. Yeah, that is just the coolest thing. So hearing all this, you'd think, well, this is a no-brainer. Now, there there are other ideas for tax reform and tax simplicity, a consumption tax uh, – uh, that would be, could be levied as a sales tax, or an, or it could be levied as a uh, an income tax minus savings. And those ideas have been proposed, and they're very interesting, and, and they have their merits. But let's stick sticking just with the flat tax, which is has many many positive features, as you've just described. Strangely enough, there are people who don't think it's a good idea. Uh, some of those are vested interests we've mentioned earlier, and some are people who are worried about some of the. The other hidden effects – we've talked about all the good hidden effects. Some people worry about some of the effects of getting rid of deductions for various items, and I want to, I want to turn to that now. So right now, uh, one of the largest uh, deductions that people have is their home interest mortgage. Uh, for those people who do itemize and who do own their own home, the mortgage interest that people pay on their house is one of the largest uh, tax reducers we have, and that would disappear and that alarms some people. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I would like to talk about that. Uh, there's a number of things to be said about it. I do think it's been used as a scare tactic in political campaigns. It is maybe along with charitable contributions, the two biggest uh, issues that are brought to oppose the flat tax. First thing I'd like to say is that Canada, Australia, and New Zealand do not allow mortgage interest reduction. The incidence of home ownership among their populations is about the same as ours, which means that the deduction for mortgage interest is certainly not an important factor in determining whether or not individuals can afford to buy homes. Rather, their level of income matters much more. So um, I think that's one point to be taken into consideration. A second issue is the very perverse nature of the mortgage interest deduction. Um, As we know, a lot of people don't itemize. They just take the standard deduction. Among those people would be those with relatively modest incomes who live in relatively modest homes whose marginal tax rate today is 15%, which means that if you, say, borrow hundred or $200,000, let's say $100,000 for simple numbers, and you pay your mortgage interest at 5%, to keep the numbers simple, which would come to $5,000 a year, and then you get a 15% deduction on that, that's $750, and that's not the difference in buying a home or not. For such people, they would take the standard deduction, which is worth much more. Now imagine you live in New York or California or some choice suburb in another wealthy state, and you've borrowed a million dollars. The interest on a million dollars is the most that you can deduct. So let's say, again, the rate is 5%, and you um, can deduct $50,000, and your top rate is 39.6% for rough numbers. Let's say it's 40%. So you take 40% of 50000 that's $20,000. Now, look at the difference here. Somebody in the lower rate deducts 750 Somebody in the higher rate can deduct 20000 right off the top. Now, that doesn't strike me as something that the great majority of Americans owning moderate homes with moderate mortgage would be concerned about. It creates the perverse situation that the richer you are, 
the bigger the benefit. Now, let's say there is some legitimate concern because homes are expensive in California and New York, and even middle-class people have to take out large mortgages. In that particular case, even if you lose the mortgage interest deduction, what you get is lower tax rates on your income. So if you're losing the deduction of 35 or 39%, that's more than offset by only paying tax of 19%. So there really isn't going to be any great change in people's affordability to buy homes, which means it shouldn't really affect the price of housing. In the long run, that's determined by real incomes and demand and, of course, supply. So the numbers on that just don't don't seem to me to, to hold up. I find it strange that people who are most concerned about the flat tax, cutting taxes on the wealthy, don't seem to be concerned at all about the fact that the wealthy today get the biggest amount of tax break on their on their housing. Um, the same thing, of course, is true for charitable contributions. That is to say, um, a low-income person goes to church, synagogue, wherever, and he puts a $5 bill on the plate. And um, one of the reasons he doesn't bother to write a check every month is because when he gets a statement back from the church or synagogue or whatever, it'll say you gave, you know, a couple hundred bucks, 300 bucks, 400 bucks, and you're paying 15% tax rate, so there's nothing there. Whereas, again, the standard deduction um, is significantly larger. You don't take it. On the other hand, um, some wealthy person who may give millions of dollars to charity will get a 40% cut on that. And um, as a result, the richer you are, the larger your subsidy. Now, of course, universities and operas and ballets and museums like this. And at one point, way back in 19 early 80s, when Ronald Reagan was cutting tax rates, the head of the Met was vigorously opposed to it because he said the Metropolitan Museum of Art would get fewer contributions because people with smaller deductions wouldn't give as much to his museum, and that was bad for civilization. So um, I don't find it very persuasive. And that, that didn't happen. When, when the rates were cut, the donations to such causes did not dry up. No, in fact, they went up. We have this chronicled in the book. We looked at the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, I haven't looked at the 90s, but I think it's the same. What we find is that when rates get cut and real incomes and equity prices go up, people give more. But when the rates were higher, people give less, even though the tax subsidy is greater. So, again, it's counterintuitive. The actual evidence shows that giving reflects wealth and equities and incomes. Um, rather than the tax subsidy and giving. But it's very hard to persuade people to focus on the evidence rather than focusing on what seems to be a straightforward argument. You reduce the rate, you reduce the subsidy, people will give less. What you've done is you've made giving charity a little more expensive because you've lowered the value of the deduction. But if people's incomes get higher as a result, in general, there's a relationship between income and charitable giving that larger income people give more. So there's two effects. They work in opposite directions. It's an empirical question which one is larger. And um, I guess the the worrier would say, well, incomes are going to go up anyway. You can't attribute the increase in income to the lowering of tax rates, and that's an empirical question too. But it's all. But what is clear, as you point out, is is the evidence that it's not the end of civilization. It's not the end of charitable giving. Uh, it, it, there may be a question of, of degree, and it could go up or down. And um, I agree with you. I think it's a scaremonger uh, approach. Well, the evidence of the last four decades has been generally on the side of um, 
when tax rates are cut, giving goes up in absolute terms. So if anything, the evidence supports the view that lowering rates that generates um, rises in uh, capital assets as well as income has been very good for charitable recipients. I'm going to go back to the housing for a minute just to make one more point because I think it's often forgotten. You know, we all have this worry that the value of our house might change. I understand that. But again, if we step back and do the Mayflower Compact exercise and we start it from scratch, why would we ever think it's a good idea to encourage people to have bigger houses, which is what the uh, mortgage deduction does? It basically says, you know, stretch yourself, buy a bigger house because the cost of the bigger house is going to be a little bit less because we've subsidized this through the tax code. There's no externality there. There's no economic argument for that. It's purely a benefit to the construction industry and to people who really like really big houses. I like a big house. Uh, my my house is, is bigger than the houses I grew up in. Most Americans live in houses that are bigger than their parents and much, much bigger than their grandparents and great-grandparents, and that's lovely. But there's no goal in and of itself for social policy that we should encourage that for its own sake. It's just a strange thing. I should add to your explanation with which I entirely agree that there's a related consequence, which is it reallocates capital from personal housing consumption to what might other be more productive yeah. purposes. So that's a very important point. But there's another feature as well, and that is, generally speaking, renters represent lower income groups in the economy as opposed to homeowners. Yes. We, in effect, are subsidizing homeowners at the expense of renters. Yeah, which also makes no no social sense. Um, and again, I, I want to make it clear that that the mortgage deduction is is not the main reason that houses are bigger today than they were in 1950 or 1900. It's our, our wealth, the same point we're making a minute ago about these uh, interactive effects between prices and income. Uh, but we've made the houses a little bigger than they otherwise would be through that deduction, and we've encouraged home ownership a little more than it otherwise would be, maybe a lot more uh, relative to renting, and there's no inherent reason that's true. And as you point out, which I think is extremely important, we've funneled productive capacity and investment into a sector of the economy that isn't inherently should should get it. And other things would be uh, would be better, and those unseen effects would would be very beneficial. Lots of people tell me without thinking that I have to buy a house, I have to buy a house, yeah. it's a tax shelter, I have to buy a house, I can write off the mortgage interest. I would point out, not too long ago, we used to be able to write off credit card interest, we can't do that anymore. We um, used to be able to write off state and local taxes, but um, that gets caught by the alternative minimum tax, which is a 28% flat tax. So um, the important thing to remember is that there's nothing to stop the Congress from further reducing the limitations. Before, we used to be able to deduct all our interest. Then it was capped at a million dollars of borrowing. There was talk with the President's Tax Reform Commission last um, year to reduce that to the median home value in each of the respective large communities in the United States, which would mean instead of deducting, say, a million dollars of mortgage interest, one might be able to deduct um, the interest on a $350,000 loan. So there's nothing sacrosanct about that number, um, and it wouldn't surprise me down the road in the future, um, if we never get a real tax reform in this country, that as members of Congress look for ways to raise additional money, they'll gradually erode that deduction as well. But in return, they won't give you lower rates. <laughs> That's true. Uh, let's turn to uh, the uh, distributional effects of this reform, this change, 
And to one to, to one of the issues that I think uh, a lot of people raise when they worry about the flat tax, which is that it's a uh, a benefit for the rich. It's going to make it's going to hurt hurt the poor, help the rich because the rich are going to get lower taxes. Before we get into that, I want to make it very clear to our listeners that language in the tax debate is very uh, confusing. That the media often confuses things that are very uh, different and treats them as if they were the same. So there is a big difference between tax rates and tax revenue. We often say, well, this will lower my taxes. Usually when we mean that, we mean a change in the size of the check we send to Washington uh, over the course of the year. Uh, but sometimes people use it to refer to tax rates. So what, what you're talking about in this reform, the flat tax, is changing the upper rates, among other things, to a single rate that would be lower of 19. So the higher rates that currently are in place now of, uh, what do they go up to now, 39.6? And actually higher when you lose the phase out on Medicare. So that's a complicated discussion, which I don't think um, we'll leave that would alone. be helpful here. Yeah. But 39.6 is the operative top rate. And that is not the average rate. That is what we call the marginal rate, meaning the next dollar that a person earns is taxed at that rate. But earlier dollars, uh, are, they're not all taxed at the 39.6. They're taxed at the lower rate. So there's this sliding schedule. And the idea here is to lower the rate to 19. Does it mean your taxes would go down? Although for some people they would, right? Uh, Remember also under the current system, there are a lot of exemptions and deductions and credits and loopholes that will disappear which means that when you're at that 39.6% rate, you um, are able to take advantage of provisions in the tax code that reduce the amount of income subject to that rate, which in effect means your income isn't really being taxed at that rate. Correct. So let's talk about the distributional effects now. Oh, the other clarifying point I want to make, which is relevant for this distributional equity, fairness, whatever you want to call it, discussion is the definition of progressive taxation. I just want to get that on the table. Uh, progressive taxation, you're advocating something uh, that we might call proportional taxation. That is, everyone would pay the same rate. The progressive taxation, the, the formal definition, is that richer people pay a higher proportion of their income in taxes. Uh, not Not repeat, not that they pay more under a pure flat tax with no deductions, no exemptions for personal uh, for uh, family issues, the rich would pay more than the poor. The question is whether it's progressive, meaning an increasingly greater amount, correct? Yeah, that is. So if you have, let's say, for a family of four, and we'll use excuse me, the number $40,000 here, they would pay no tax on the first $40,000 of their income, then they would pay a flat rate of 19% on everything above that. So if you made $50,000, you would pay $1,900 um, on that last $10,000 between $40,000 and $50,000. Your total tax would be $1,900 on $50,000, which would be just under 2%. So you would go from zero to two percent to three to four to five, and finally, when you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars, you would be getting very close to nineteen percent. So it is progressive. I think the language I like to use is that the proportional single rate tax is different from a graduated tax rate schedule. 
where you have brackets rising as your income rises. Here, progressivity can work with both, um, but the important point that most people have a hard time grasping is that a flat rate tax with a personal allowance for husbands, wives, children, single persons makes the system progressive. The debate which you're about to raise is, is it progressive enough? Right. And what is the appropriate level of progressivity in a society like ours? Yeah, and before we get to that, I just want to clarify that point you made, which you correctly pointed out is difficult for people to grasp. Even though everyone's income is taxed at 19%, because you're allowed to deduct from your taxable base the personal exemption of, say, 40000 in the case of a family of four – Everyone who earns less than – every family of four that earns less than 40000 pays zero. Correct. Zero tax. Zero. So their, ta- their average tax rate is zero. If you bump above the 40000 either because you get a raise or you take a second job or you start off above 40000 you pay 19% on everything above 40000 which means that your average tax rate is always less than 19%. The higher right. your income, the closer it gets to 19%. Right. At a million dollars, you're very close. Yeah. But the point we want to make is that for most of the range of, of Americans' incomes, uh, in the zero to, say, 300000 which I think gets you the bottom uh, uh, 99%, uh, the, ra- the average tax rate would vary all the way up from zero up to 40000 uh, 2% if you were at 50000 and slowly rise – as you earned more and more, the average rate would rise. The, the marginal rate, the effective rate that's applied to your income minus your, your personal exemption, would be that flat rate we're talking about of 19%. The language is very important. And in the absence of clear language, it's easy to muddy the water. That's why I like to talk about the difference between progressivity being a concept of the wealthier pay more, but graduated rates versus a single rates clarifies the debate on the rate Mm-hmm. So here's the issue. The, the critics of the flat tax say, okay, even it's true that the average rate is higher for richer people than poorer people, but as you pointed out, it's not high enough because as a result of this reform, some wealthier people will, will pay less, will pay less, and that means that some poorer people must have to pay more. They may not be the people under 40000 They will continue to pay zero. But some people who currently pay some amount will pay more than they currently do, correct? That is true. I want to put this in some historical perspective and then go directly to the question. Under President Dwight David Eisenhower, we had a schedule of something on the order of 11 different tax rates, which ranged from 20 to 91%. John F. Kennedy came into office, the economy was stagnant, and he felt something needed to be done to give it a jump start. He proposed an across-the-board tax rate reduction. He lowered the bottom rate from 20 to 14 and the top rate from 91 to 70. Now, the reduction at the bottom was very small, but the reduction at the top was very large. He chopped 21 points off the top. I don't recall that anyone accused uh, John F. Kennedy of giving a tax cut to his wealthy friends. Um, not a come up to more modern history, George Herbert Walker Bush in 1991 um, agreed to have the top rate of tax rise from 28% to 31%. And so, in effect, he raised marginal tax rates on his wealthy friends. So if you go back to the time the income 
tax was first adopted with the constitutional change. The top rate was 7%. Just in the course of World War One, it got to 77 was reduced to 25% in the 1920s, found its way back up in the Korean War to 91%, worked its way down to 70%, then 50%, then 28%, worked its way back up to 21%, and to then 31, back, yeah. 31, and then 39.6%. I'm hard-pressed to see that anybody could pick any specific year from 1916 to 2007 and say, that's it. That's the kind of progressivity we like in the tax code. Let's stay with that one because that's optimal, that's ideal, that's perfect, that achieves social equity. And the truth of the matter is the tax code changes every year with amendments and new credits and taking away old credits and imposing new limits on deductions and reducing limits on deductions. So what critics are basically saying is, look, I like hammering rich people, so this is a good chance for me to complain that if we reduce the rate from 39.6 to uh, 19, that's a real tax cut for the wealthy. But let's point out, the wealthy lose half of the deduction for their home mortgage interest. The wealthy lose half of the deduction for their charitable contribution. The wealthy lose half of their deduction for uh, excess medical expenses, swimming pools for back uh, recreation. Um, this just simply shows that when you reduce the rate, you already reduce a large part of the write-offs the wealthy enjoy. So you're attacking the wealthy on the one hand while you're giving them a break on the other hand. But we should go further. I think another point of confusion in understanding taxes is that individuals who criticize the flat tax make a distinction between the corporate income tax and the individual income tax. It's very important to understand that corporations are, simple legal, are simply legal entities that collect revenue on behalf of their owners. So to put it in a more popular way, businesses don't pay taxes, people do. And the people who own the businesses pay the taxes on the income from those businesses. And the flat tax attempts to set up an airtight business to fully tax all business income. Today, we don't fully tax all business income. About half of it escapes taxation. And since it's disproportionately wealthy people who receive income from business taxation, the change of the flat tax dramatically raises the share of income collected from business taxation and substantially reduces the share collected from wage and salary taxation. So when you think about giving a tax cut to the wealthy, those who are upper-income households whose income is totally wages and salaries get a tax cut. Those whose income disproportionately comes from business get a tax increase. There's no across-the-board cut for wealthy people, no across-the-board increase for lower or middle-income people. Everything depends upon your individual situation uh, so the question is, what do we want to do? Do we want to keep the current mess? Do we want to impose $300 billion in tax evasion, several hundred billion in tax preparation and tax planning and compliance, an intrusive IRS, a less efficient economy, all in the name of some hard-to-prove uh, charge that simply wealthy people will get a tax cut at the expense of lower- and middle-income people, um, my view on that is that the tax code should be a relatively neutral system that doesn't interfere with productive decisions. 
Now, if the people of the United States, through their elected representatives in the Congress and the President, want to enact laws and regulations to redistribute income, to make up for some concerns about gaps in income or opportunities some people are missing, the best way to do that is through the expenditure side of the budget. The problem is it's out in the open and people can rail against it and maybe hard to get it adopted. It's a lot easier to hide features in the tax code and give preferential benefits that way. And most of the lobbying in Washington isn't for spending. It's more for benefits in the tax code. So it's a very complicated answer. It's a very complicated question. Um, it lends itself to demagoguery. It's the, um, it's the whip that the critics of the flat tax use. You just charge in one sound bite. The tax cut, get a wealthy. It's unfair. The correct answer needs a half an hour. So it's a very hard thing to defend. Um, and even here, it's taken me quite some time just to lay out a very simple response. If you think about it a little bit more and how everything changes, um, I believe the benefits so overwhelm concerns about these distributional issues, especially since next year's tax code will differ from this year's and we'll have a new set of distributional issues. Yeah, I, I'm on your side. I, I think the, um, the not obvious, harder to explain benefits would be quite large and the many of which would accrue in an economy with more opportunity to people who currently have less opportunity. So I think the the correct full distributional impact of this is, um, hard, as you say, harder to explain. But I think the, the interesting point about this is, since the consensus of economists is that you will have higher rates of economic growth. Again, I don't want to put a number on it because people will quarrel with those numbers, but there's no doubt it's higher. That will mean rising incomes and more jobs, and that's got to help people at the lower income level. Those people won't be subject to tax till they hit 40000 And when they do hit 40000 they'll be subject to a very low tax burden. And they will have very strong incentives to work, save, and invest because they won't have to worry about being hit with ever higher tax rates. Yeah, one issue we haven't talked about is payroll taxes. Now, when you're talking about the 19% rate, I assume, are you including payroll taxes? You would not eliminate the payroll tax. No. Um, we made a decision in 1981 that the attempt to deal with the payroll tax at the same time would so complicate the discussion as to make it impossible to focus on the inefficiencies of the income tax. There is, I believe, and I say this in jest, but many people think it's more than in jest, Members of Congress cannot walk and chew gum at the same time. And if you ask them to concurrently deal with the payroll tax and the income tax at the same time, what will happen is, as happened during recent Social Security tax reform debates, is elderly women will be brought to testify before Congress and say that the cat food they can't afford to buy today will be even less affordable if they lose their Social Security taxes because people will say, that any change in the system is simply a pot to deprive the elderly of their only retirement benefit. Now, I wrote a proposal in 1998 showing how one could combine the Social Security and the flat tax and end up with a single 25% rate. And this was just an idea to indicate that if one wanted to reform the two together by flattening the income tax, 
with an existing flat Social Security tax, you could combine the two. But I think um, it would be very, very difficult politically to be able to explain why Social Security would be just as well off, if not better off, than such a reform. And so I think it makes sense to concentrate one's focus on the income tax. I agree with your political um, wisdom there, but it is worth pointing out, as you pointed out in the case of uh, expenditures versus the tax code, that uh, people who are stealing money from others via the Washington system like to do it quietly rather than out in the open. So they are always fighting for changes in the 66,000 pages of the tax code rather than clamoring for some particular change on the expenditure side that's easier to see. And at the same time, it drives me nuts that we have this payroll tax, which gives the illusion that you are funding your Social Security payment when in fact it all goes into the same pot and it allows the government to make you think you're earning your Social Security payment, your Social Security payments uh, checks of the future. When in fact it's it's just it's it's a sham, and so, it's regressive. And it's regressive because individuals who make less than a hundred thousand will pay the full tax, and for those who make over a hundred, they will pay the full tax only up to about a hundred, and thereafter it's tax free. Yeah. Now the, the so I would, you know, if I had my druthers, I would certainly advocate that twenty five percent rolling in together of the uh, flat tax and the social secure, and the payroll tax system, but that is a um, a bit of a pipe dream. Let me ask you about another related question, uh, which is fringe benefits. Uh, as when marginal rates are high, uh, employers have a incentive and employees have an incentive to take compensation in the form of non-taxable fringe benefits. Uh, would the flat tax have any effect on that? Yes, it would remove the tax-free treatment of fringe benefits. The origin of fringe benefits dates to World War II, when um, there was a freeze on wages and salaries. And in order for employers to get people to work for them during the war, when labor was scarce, they basically uh, couldn't pay them anymore, but they could give them untaxed in-kind fringe benefits, and that's when they began to do so. Um, at the end of World War II, I believe the ratio of fringe benefit to cash compensation was 1%. Now it's 1 in 3. So for every $3 of cash compensation, the average employee receives $1 of untaxed fringe benefits. And that, I, sh- I should add that, that that enormous increase over time, which which jumps around but has been fairly steady, is uh, besides being uh, ha- encouraging people to do more of things just because they're tax-free and for no other inherent reason, also uh, hides what's happening with our standard of living because most of our government measures of wages and average hourly earnings and income uh, don't include those fringe benefits. So incomes and standard of living look stagnant when, in fact, they're growing. That drives me crazy as well. I just put that in as a pet peeve aside, Alvin, and I apologize, but continue. So after World War II... So the rate went up from like $1 and 100 to $1 and $3. And um, I have seen some studies that were done a few years ago. Um, they took the dollar value of fringe benefits... And they try to figure out that if individuals were to buy the same services that the fringe benefits purchased, they would only buy 80% as much in the open market, which meant there was a 20% waste factor in it, and that waste factor was due to the tax subsidy. Right. You'd never put up with that if you're paying for it yourself. Right. So the, the, the thing is that what we're now doing, and let's take, for example, the health care debate. Um, we always think of how can we improve our health care system and we always look to further complicating the tax code with another provision. 
So we have an educational problem, give children tax credits. We have a daycare problem, give people tax credits. We have an energy problem, give people tax credits. Um, we have this problem, give people tax credits. And what ends up happening, of course, is each one of these further misallocate resources, and it drives investors and money to these preferential areas rather than to areas which would be the most productive. So you add them all up and in the long run, and you end up with the current the, the current mess. So the, the um, these tax, are all important considerations. But the flat tax wouldn't wouldn't necessarily end fringe benefits. Just no, reduces. it would just end their tax-free treatment. Well, they'd still. How would it end their tax-free treatment? Well, what would happen is that the value of a fringe benefit would count as cash for tax purposes. So if somebody is giving you a health insurance policy, or they're giving you any other benefit. Basically, the dollar value of that would be treated for tax purposes the same as cash. Well, it could be, but it, you're saying that that's what you would prefer. If that's what it would be in our flat tax plan. Right, but we could have that now, and it politically faces the same challenges. Oh, yes, but the advantage, once again, is the lower rate. Yes. That is to say, at 39.6%, I want more vacation pay, and I want a better health care plan, and I want uh, a college tuition plan, and I wouldn't mind uh, an employer-provided automobile. And at a, 19%, a squash court and a, <laughs> right. a gym a fitness facility on site, et cetera, et cetera. And let's make it clear. The reason we, we always want those things, but we particularly want our employer to pay for them if we can have them in a tax-free fashion. Otherwise, right, we'd have to have higher Right, but if they're taxable, income. I want more money at 19%, and I'll go buy what I want. Right. That's correct. It, it, it greatly lowers the incentive to, to offer those things. Let's turn to the um, history of the idea uh, that the, the you um, uh, first proposed in 1981 with Robert Hall. Uh, you wrote a book, and that was 1981, which seems like about 150 years ago politically. Uh, it had a sp- impact on the United States and it had an impact outside the United States. Let's start with the United States. You you, you came up with this idea of, of a flat rate. You made these calculations back of the envelope, but pretty probably pretty close to the number you'd get if you spent a lot of time at it and you got 19%. You proposed a deduction schedule. You actually printed up the postcard so you could actually see. It really is simple. And how did the world react? How did the pol- political uh, world react? Well, there was a big rush of enthusiasm in the United States in 1982. Many bills were introduced in Congress. Um, It sort of faded because we had this terrible recession, if you recall, brought about by an attempt to stamp out the inflation of the Carter years. Um, And the issue more or less faded. And then also Ronald Reagan's um, initial uh, Tax Reform Act in 1981, which cut marginal rates, was improved. And then the issue picked up again in 1980. uh, four and um, got hot again. And in 1986, we adopted the Tax Reform Act, which reduced the top rate to 28%. We had two rates, 15 and 28. Before then, we had had rates running from uh, 14 to 70. So um, by 1986, the steam had gone out of the movement. <clears throat> we were down to two rates, but um, a number of people who were very instrumental in the Congress and people advising the president said that um, they really did like the flat tax but felt that maybe they couldn't go all the way in 1986, so they settled on a compromise. Two, we settled on a compromise of two rates, which two is rates. simpler than the, than the schedule, but all the deductions stayed. It's Not all of them. Some were curtailed. Of them, some were removed. 
Um, there were certain limitations on deductions. So, for example, if you were a doctor and ran a property business on the side, you couldn't deduct your property losses against your salaried income. Okay. So there were some barriers thrown up. There were some improvements in the system. Um, but, uh, but most of the complexity remained. That is correct. Then in 1991, we had the tax rate increase of, um, <clears throat> of George Herbert Walker Bush, followed in 1993 with Bill Clinton ratcheting the rate back up. So in 1994, when the Republicans took over the Congress, um, Dick Armey took it on himself to push the flat tax, and then Steve Forbes ran on the flat tax. Um, and a great um, movement um, and discussion um, in the presidential debates and um, in the Congress continued, but no major reform was accomplished. Um, President Bush's election was able to result in a tax reform that didn't reform the code. In fact, it's longer than it ever was. It just managed to reduce the top rates of personal income, on capital gains, and on dividends. And... Um, and these potentially, are, potentially eliminate the estate tax. But potentially, but yes, uh, these, these are all scheduled to expire in 2010, and then in 2011 we go back to the law of 2001 unless permanent changes are made. But the, the measures were important. They did improve uh, the economy. They did improve the capital market. They did improve labor incentives. But the system is more complicated because we had kitty credits and we have new health care provisions and we have hope credits and we have educational credits and um, a lot of what I would call measures further junked up the tax code, if I can use that language. So um, today, um, I think the flat tax is on the back burner in this country. To give you some illustration, um, just recently, um, Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney called the flat tax unfair. So he's already staked out opposition to the flat tax. Giuliani has said that if we could start from scratch, it might be a good idea, but I don't know if we can do it now. Um, Fred Thompson hasn't said anything, and John McCain hasn't said anything. But already the gauntlet was thrown down by Mitt Romney, and on the Democratic side, it's highly unlikely that any of the candidates will push for something like the flat tax. So um, to anticipate your next question, I tend to focus all of my intellectual and personal efforts on promoting the flat tax abroad in the hope that if enough countries abroad adopt it and the benefits are widely seen, it will ultimately feed back into the Western world. I think you're right. So tell us about some of the success the flat tax has had outside the United States. Well, let me begin with the first country in the modern era. The collapse of the Soviet Union turned an empire into uh, more than a dozen new independent countries. And these have been the testing ground. The first was Estonia in 1994. It began at 26%. It's down to 22%. They plan to reduce it to 18%. They've abolished the corporate income tax, which means that the only flat tax individuals pay on business income is on distributed dividends. There is no tax on corporate profits. The uh, government budget has been in surplus five years in a row. The economy is growing at 11% a year. It's an incredible success story. Revenue from the flat tax is growing at 15% a year. The government cannot spend the money as fast as it comes in. And I was recently there at last August, and Estonia is just an enormous, prosperous, booming community. They're having to import labor from Finland. Um, when you said they, they adopted it and lowered the rate from, what was it, 26, 26 to, to 22? 22. And, it's scheduled to go to 20 in 2009, and they're proposing to reduce it to 18. Did they also, besides the simplicity of a single rate, did they also adopt the lack of, of deductions that, that you've advocated? Um, it, it's 
it's a clean, simple system. There is a personal allowance, very much along the same lines as the one in our book, but there's no complication on the business side of it because there is no corporate income tax. So no. it's even simpler than in our But on proposal. the individual side, there's no mortgage deduction, there's no charitable no. deduction, no. there's no, no. kitty care, there's no... No, just, okay. the, just the large personal allowance. Okay, very nice. So that was, that was Estonia. And then Latvia followed and Lithuania followed. Um, Latvia is at 25%. Um, Lithuania came in at 34, 33, but they're reducing it to 24, and there's talk in both countries of following Estonia down the rate schedule. The best story, of course, is Russia, which had a terrible problem. To reflect uh, the West, they adopted three rates of 12, 22, and 30, but most people didn't pay the money. The uh, capital flight uh, went abroad. The country had to uh, default on its bonds, devalue its currency. They had a deep, deep, deep recession, in fact, a depression. In 2001, they adopted a 13% flat tax. In the five years it's been in place, revenue has more than doubled, adjusted for inflation. The budget is in surplus. They paid off all their foreign debt. The country is rolling in foreign investment. They piled up dollar reserves. The ruble has been appreciated. Russians are on an acquisition binge abroad. They arrested a couple of guys on tax evasion. A few fled the country, and now people boast about how much they pay in taxes. Such other countries as Ukraine, Slovakia, Georgia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Mongolia, Kyrgyzstan, Mauritius, all of them have adopted the flat tax and others are considering it. To the best of my knowledge, based on the information I've seen as of yesterday, the flat tax has done very well in every country. Revenue has gone up, not down. Economic growth has increased, not decreased. People are not clamoring for uh, systems of graduated rates and soaking the rich. Um, the average rate of economic growth in the flat tax countries is 2% higher than the average rate of growth in the countries in Eastern Europe that have not yet adopted the flat tax. In Romania, which adopted a year ago, they surprised themselves by discovering way more revenue than they predicted. So the benefits accrue to individuals, the benefits accrue to investment, the benefits accrue to workers, the benefits are simple. And in Estonia, everything is done online on the Internet. Um, it's so simple. Um, I've seen the tax form. It's Super, super simple. The law is about seven pages long. It's very easy to do. Um, there is talk about the flat tax in some Western countries. The uh, proposals have been written for Italy and Spain, um, small parties in Denmark and Finland. But uh, for now, most of Western Europe is still tied into their older, what they call social justice, social market model of thinking, and they still have tax systems that are worse than we have here in the United States. But um, there's a lot of recognition on the part of Germany and France and Italy that investment is moving into these East Bloc countries. So these countries have talked about reducing the corporate rate. They haven't yet talked much about reducing personal rates, but um, I'm hopeful the tax pressure and tax competition will bring the idea of the flat tax to Western Europe. My hope would be that if just one big, major, important country in Western Europe adopts it, and it seemed to be successful, then most of the criticism um, in the United States will gradually lose its bite, and people will say, look, if it's so good in Germany and Italy and France, maybe we should consider it. Yeah, I think that's uh, – I think you're absolutely right. I think that is the political road to uh, tax freedom here in the United States, unfortunately. Uh, I wish there were a shorter road, but I, I suspect that's the road that it will take. I'm curious about the countries you mentioned. It's, it's quite a long list. Uh, 
They are smaller countries, but it, it's quite impressive. Of well, those, Russia and Ukraine are pretty big size. Yeah, but of those countries, uh, some of them started from scratch, as we'd said before, Correct. right? They said, well, we've got to have a tax system. We have a new country. Right. Did any of them go from a complex system yes. to a, Yes. In fact, um, only the first three started from scratch. Russia went from three rates to one. Ukraine went from five rates to one. Slovakia went from five rates to one. Romania, I believe, went from three rates to one. Montenegro went from two or three rates to one. Macedonia went from three rates to one. Um, Georgia went from, I believe, three or four rates to one. Mongolia went from two rates to one. Mauritius, two rates to one. Um, what did happened any of them, is, But did any of them throw out the deductions at the same time, or did they just simplify the rate structure? Well, they simplified the rate structure um, in the main, but um, the original deductions weren't that many. It never yeah. developed like our system. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, sort so of. what <laughs> happened is that they basically bought into the social justice model of Western Europe, whereas you're supposed to tax the rich at ever-increasing rates. And they discovered the economies didn't do well. Capital flight, the rich sent their money abroad instead of investing it. Yeah. Or uh, they hid it. Or they Foreigners hit it. didn't come to invest. And when they went to the flat tax, all those things reversed. They didn't quite have the morass of deductions and exemptions we have, so that was less of a problem for them. Um, or to put it in the language of interest groups here, there were fewer interest groups who tried to preserve the current system for fear of losing their exemptions. Most um, of these groups recognized that what the economies needed was investment and growth. And as a result, the business community didn't fight for exemptions. They fought for a pro-investment incentive-based tax system. Mm-hmm. Well, we're we're taping this on... April the 13th, and it will air on April the 23rd, bracketing the um, magical day where we pay our taxes. And we can only hope that that these kind of days will be different sometime down the road. And when your ideas uh, and the arguments you make, which are quite persuasive to me at least, uh, have, a, have a better hearing in Washington and elsewhere. I should add, by the way, that I'm um – received invitations in the last month to <clears throat> keynote and head off a conference in Bulgaria, which is one of the few countries that hasn't yet adopted it. Um, and I've been approached by um, a tax group, the former vice president of the University of Lima, to come down and talk about the flat tax there. So um, it's encouraging to see that maybe even Latin America, the idea is starting to Appeal. One of the things I should mention is that while I personally had my hands in the tax reforms in some countries, um, it's turned out that it's spreading on its own. A couple of years ago when I spoke on the flat tax in Croatia, the deputy prime minister of Albania was there. He's now persuaded the prime minister of Albania and the cabinet to push for a flat tax, and they've sent the bill to parliament, so Albania may adopt the flat tax in the next few months. So the idea is spreading that is most of the people in the region have heard me talk or they've seen the reforms and they take these ideas back to their own country and they see the benefits of tax competition. So um, what's really needed now are some breakthroughs in Latin America and uh, Africa and Western Europe. And then I, I think we might get the attention of people here in this country. My guest today has been Alvin Rabushka, the David and Joan Traytel Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution author of The Flat Tax.
Alvin, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. Monday.